The Pace Line Podcast is sponsored by Health IQ, an insurance company that helps health conscious people get special life insurance rates. Go to healthiq.com forward slash paceline to support the show and learn more. And the Pace Line is supported by LAL Cycling. The coast is calling. LAL Shore Collection embodies the spirit and style of the California coast. All LAL products are crafted right here in Southern California for shipment worldwide. Now on to the show. A sprint finish, a crash, and a DQ ends in a draw. The UCI and ASO, um, they got this as wrong as wrong can be. A six-month-late apology? No, no, that is unacceptable. And we hang out with Aaron Stinner of Stinner Frameworks, who takes it one day at a time, one bike at a time. For us, we don't need to figure out how to build a thousand bikes today because we don't have a thousand orders coming in a year. So it's like, for us, we do about a bike a day and that's our system is built perfectly to be able to put out a bike a day. Paceline, the podcast on two wheels, show 93. Hello, everyone. Thanks for uh, finding the Paceline podcast, a service of Red Kite Prayer. I am uh, Michael Houghton, a sometime voice on this podcast, but not the person that normally opens this podcast. That would be Fatty, Eldon Fatty Nelson, not with us uh, today. He's got a new busy job, and we're happy to say, Patrick, that Fatty loves his new job, and we're both happy for him because uh, he's in a really good place work-wise, but it does mean you know, he has to take the occasional vacation uh, from the pace line. So we're going to kind of fill in here, kind of cover up his spot, take an extra poll, do what we need to do uh, to make this thing happen. And I think we'll, we'll do okay. You know, we'll, I'm going to we'll seep fine. into the gaps. <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> you, you need to participate fully and then some. It's 120% today from, oh, great. from Patrick Bray. <laughs> um, here in uh, Southern California, Patrick, uh, we're getting what you got a couple months ago, and that uh, are wildfires. And we have a number of them going right now. It's just crazy down here, man. I mean, you live down here. You remember this fall season. Although uh, for December, this is even kind of nuttier. By now, you know, LA's usually gotten some rain and fires that do break out have less of a chance to get going, but we simply haven't had much rain down here. And now we are we are getting hammered right now, folks. It is not a good scene. Uh, the winds have been blowing uh, very hard and uh, the firefighters are stretched. As we speak right now, Patrick, there are four major fires burning right now. I think yeah. you're well over one, one in Ventura. Uh, that's the next county over. There's one not eight miles from me right now up in the Sepulveda Pass, Bel Air. Folks should be, you know, should uh, know that name. Bel Air is uh, some very wealthy folks up there. Mansions were burning as I left work today. Um, there's a fire uh, in the northeast of San Fernando Valley in the foothills up there. And then a fourth one uh, near uh, Magic Mountain, which is the north end of uh, Los Angeles County. So... Uh, it's troublesome times. It's very difficult. Obviously, uh, the atmosphere here is also suffering. I mean, even for the, for the folks not directly affected by the flames and the fires, uh, millions of people are having to deal with it in one fashion or another, not to mention the, the freeways that get shut down. And we've shut down two major freeways, Patrick, in the last 24 hours. The I-5 
the route in and out of Southern California was completely shut down yesterday. And today, the 405, which is the busiest freeway, arguably the busiest freeway in America, completely shut down during morning drive. So absolutely nuts uh, what's going on here in Southern California. Of course, you're well aware of it on, on two fronts. You, you lived yeah. through it this past fall up in Santa Rosa. Awful what happened up there. And, of course, you were a longtime resident down here. Um, and first of all, watching it from afar, watching it from a distance, um, what, what's the perception you're getting from a distance as far as the magnitude of this thing? Oh, it's bad. It, I mean, sure, the optics on it are terrible. You know, we're hearing wind speeds similar to what we got up here. Uh, you know, we're seeing people evacuated from homes. You know, it's scary as hell for me because, you know, so many people I care about are in SoCal. And I'm seeing these posts on Facebook from friends about, okay, we're packing up to go. This may not be here when we get back. Um, and it's, I, you know, I've seen so many... Uh, so many awful examples of what happened here, you know, last week's, uh, ride with Peter Sagan, you know, took me through some areas that I hadn't previously seen. And every time I think I've been through all the neighborhoods that burned, you know, I end up seeing something else. And so to try and transpose that devastation onto, you know, another place that I do know, I mean, I used to live in the Santa Clarita Valley, you know, within sight of Magic Mountain. So I know that area. Um, you know, I've, I've done plenty of little mini vacations to Ventura. And so, you know, there's a bed and breakfast there that I adore and I'm wondering if it's still standing. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I guess the strangest part of this is, you know, okay, yeah, there are fires, but they are at a scale that is highly unusual. Uh, you've got fire chiefs who weren't up here for these fires going, this is the worst thing I've ever seen. And I don't want to get into a situation of comparing the two, but you really hate to hear anyone talk about, you know, worst case scenarios or, or you know, the, the, the biggest devastation they've seen. And it's just so strange that this is taking place in December. You know, the fire season is supposed to be over. Mm-hmm. Well, fires like this produce superlatives, that's for sure. Uh, they, it is pretty crazy. And interesting, too, we're going to have a special guest on an interview a little later. And we recorded this interview with, uh, his name is Aaron Stinner. He's from Stinner Frameworks. He builds frames down here in SoCal. But when we recorded the interview, Patrick, we actually recorded it when the fires were burning up there in Santa Rosa because he's a, he's a native of Santa Rosa. So we'll get an interesting perspective from him, too, a little later in our interview with uh, Aaron Stinner. But, uh, yeah, back to the fires and the smoke. Now, this is a bike show. We're going to talk about cycling, too. And um, for me, when when fires break out here in SoCal, um, I'll have to say from a writing standpoint, look, a lot of, there's all these health warnings that go out and, you know, the health departments and the city officials and county officials will tell folks, don't go outdoors, stay inside, run your air conditioning. Uh, if you like to exercise, you know, put it off, don't do it. Uh, don't go out and breathe the air. There's a lot of these warnings that go out whenever we have these big fires like that. Uh, I'll have to say, and it may be foolish, um, I, while I don't ignore them, um, I do still ride. Like last night I did ride to an appointment. Now I make my rides, Patrick, um, less intense. And I don't know if that makes any difference or not, but I just try not to, you know, gulp in the air. I try to keep things at a low aerobic level if I do choose to get on the bike. Cause it is 
hard on the lungs to be breathing in that. You might as well smoke a cigarette, you know, when it gets this smoky out. But I do ride. I, I, if things don't get horribly worse by the weekend, I expect to be riding a bike. I'll try to do the right thing and ride away from the smoke, although I've seen people do just the opposite around here. And, oh, there's a fire, and they ride straight up into the mountains where the where the fires are burning. Takes all uh, kinds. But, yeah, but I, I, I will ride, um, and, and I'll try to just, you know, avoid and stay cool and and try to ride in an area that seems less impacted by the smoke. I'm wondering, what what's your approach to this, What both as a SoCal native? How did you approach this when fires broke out? And in Santa Rosa, what what has been the attitude up there regarding outdoor activities? Has it resumed? How quickly did it resume? Well, the thing that I learned from some doctors, you know, was essentially that, look, if you go outside and you smell a campfire— then you are breathing in, you know, toxins and ash and whatnot. You know, to carry that smell, you have to have particles, you know, uh, enter your sinuses. Otherwise, you won't detect anything. And so if you can smell, you know, that campfirey, smoky, sooty sort of smell, then you're you're breathing in toxins from from those fires. And that's when you want to kind of rethink your riding. I remember years ago, Santa Ana's were blowing. Uh, it was spring because uh, it was right around Easter. Um, and there was some fire going on somewhere in the Inland Empire. And it was blowing all the smoke out to sea. And we thought on our Sunday ride, well, instead of going up to Malibu and just riding through all the smoke, why don't we go on the south side of the Palos Verdes Peninsula and stay out of the prevailing winds and whatnot and just stay on the south side uh, of the peninsula, climb in the hills there, and then, you know, we'll head back for coffee. By the time we got back uh, to the coffee shop and took our helmets off, we all looked like we'd been through some deranged uh, Ash, Ash Wednesday. And I mean, literally, there were marks on our foreheads from the ash. Uh, and we really hadn't even smelled that much we thought it, we thought it was you know a tolerable degree of campfire smell and up here there was one day we tried riding uh went way out west county uh the willow creek watershed went to ride there thinking we were way away from it and we got into the woods and we could still smell it and at the top of one of the climbs we realized we all felt like we'd been you know, I don't know, huffing on a pipe or something. Mm -hmm. And so we just, we, uh, we turned back toward the gate and headed home, cut the ride short. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just not worth it. Cause I mean, that one day I felt that ride for the next two days afterward. All right, how about now? Are people, people have returned to activities now in the Santa Rosa area? Oh yeah. There's, yeah. Uh, there are times where, you know, you'll ride into a neighborhood and you can smell it again, but the winds aren't carrying smoke around anymore. All the fires are out. All the hot spots are done with. And so, you know, our concern that we might not be able to ride for a month or two, uh, that proved to be unfounded. Mm -hmm. And so riding here is no problem. Uh, yeah. there are just some roads you're still not allowed to get on. Right. I see, you know, I'll still ride to work, um, when fires, and first of all, down here at my place, I'm lucky enough that the smoke really hasn't reached here, even though it's very, the fires that are burning are very close. It's just the way the wind is carrying the smoke. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I got home when I left work. I could smell smoke when I got home. It was pretty. It's pretty clear, and there's a, there's a fire pretty close. So I think riding south of my location is going to be pretty good. Um, so I, I'm again, we are torn up about people losing things, um, about uh, the, the effort that's going in to try to suppress these fires. It, it's just crazy, and we're hoping for the best for everyone. Um, in the meantime, we're, we're happy to have our health and and being moving uh, moving along. Um, so, again, pace line says, folks, hang in there. It's going to get better with these fires. And uh, the the disturbing thing I read just before we recorded the podcast here, Patrick, is I read a little National Weather Service thing about when rain might be expected. And the, and the forecaster wrote, rain? Forget about it. It ain't happening for weeks really? around here. I said, yeah, so it's going to be a tough one. But, <sighs> okay. Wow. Ah, well, how are you feeling anyhow? What's... uh? I know I'm doing. I'm doing a little better. Speaking of personal health, yeah. I'm doing a little better. Uh, the fitness is coming back. You know, all the little broken little injuries I had. Still doing some PT, but starting to come around a little bit. The rides are picking up, getting a little longer, so that's good. How about you, sir? Well, I'm I'm glad to hear you're on the mend. You know, continuing to improve. That's that is terrific news. I'm happy for you. Uh, I, on the other hand, have a four year old who has a a complete dislike of the notion of covering his mouth when he coughs. Uh, that wouldn't be a big problem, except he's sick. Yeah. Uh, and so it's, it's almost to the point of being malicious. Uh, you know, he just, he's absolutely just completely opposed to the idea of covering his mouth. When he was younger, it wasn't a problem. We trained him and it was good. He'd put his, you know, the inside of his elbow over his mouth and uh, that was terrific. And he coughed on me directly several times yesterday and I had a long day, worked until midnight last night and then had trouble getting to sleep. And this morning I wake up and, hey, I've got a sore throat. Mm. I don't feel dynamite. So I'm skipping today's ride. Uh, not only am I skipping today's ride, I'm not picking the boys up early from school and daycare to take them to the pump track. Uh, I'm also wondering if we're actually going to go get our Christmas tree today. We may hold that off for a day or two. Uh, so, uh, that actually segues rather conveniently into this week's VIQ, uh, for our very important question this week, it seemed apropos to talk uh, health, especially as this is a time of year when, you know, it's flu season. I know I'm seeing friends, uh, seeing, shall we say, uh, social media posts from friends who are getting stomach crud and flu and all sorts of different things. I know when I was young, if I got sick, I had to feel so badly that I just didn't even want to be on the bike before I would not ride. I rode through everything stupidly. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll own it stupidly. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> pardon. Mm-hmm. Um, but these days it's a, it's a little different scene. Um, and I've got an unhappy cat in my lap. I don't I know. know I heard that. <laughs> I, I thought, I didn't know if that was your cold or the cat, but I think it's the cat, right? <laughs> it's not my colon. It's my cat. Does the cat have your cold now? No, no. Oh, okay. But he's, he's ill-tempered in a way that I might be tomorrow if this keeps getting worse. Whoa, that's good. 
I'm not even touching him. Okay. So anyway, the question is, has your behavior evolved over the years with regard to getting sick? The options are, I hammer through. Uh, B is, I skip rides for three or four days. And, you know, then you get back to it. Um, Option C, I stay off until I'm well. And then for the really hardcore cases, sick. (laughs) <laughs> and so, uh, turns out 6% of our listeners still just completely hammer through. Um, I, I respect their determination, if not their intelligence. No, I, I, I do. I respect their determination. That's, that's impressive. Uh, 22% of our, our listeners say I skip rides for three or four days. 61% are like me. I just stay off until I'm well. I'm not mm. going to mess with this. It's not worth any sort of relapse. I'm just going to stay off the bike until I know I'm healthy. Yeah. And then 11%, surprisingly, incredibly, enviably, say, sick? Like they never get sick. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, damn them or something. I know. <laughs> I'm Ditto. Yeah. I mean, I could get I could get three versions of the flu shot, and I'll probably still get something. I mean, everybody gets something, don't they? So the the fall of 2013, you know, through the winter and early spring of 2014, in a six month stretch between my two boys, who were one and four at the time, I got sick every seven weeks for six months. Mm-hmm. Oof. Oof. Yeah. It was, it was awful. It was just awful. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, yeah, it was some, actually all totaled, it was something like, you know, getting sick five times over an even longer uh, period of time. But yeah, I wow. just kept getting sick. Uh, they kept hammering me. And my fitness uh, that spring of 2014 was... It was a long time before I became fit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. I so see that. Well, everyone, teach your kids to cover their mouth when they cough and um, wipe everything down, right? Keep oh lots God, of handy yeah. wipes ready. I've been washing my hands like crazy and it still hasn't helped. Uh, yep. You can wash them until you're a chap, right? Chap hands, you wash them and they still get sick. So, ah, it's that time of the year. Yeah. We're going to get sick. Okay, well, you know, we've got a pretty packed show here. In fact, a, a lengthy interview. So what we're going to do, folks, is we're going to get to the news first, which is something we usually put in the second half. But we're going to jump to some news real quick, and then coming up, we're going to have a, a great interview with Aaron Stinner. I think you're going to enjoy It's a little long, but uh, a lot of fun. He's a good guy. So we're going to jump into some news, Patrick, now. some uh, A lot of, um, actually, bike racing news making headlines, even though we're, we're completely out of the season. Actually, this is the type of news I kind of get into. It's not so much the results and the races. It's all that other stuff that goes on. <laughs> Offstage. Uh, yeah, that offstage, that offseason stuff. First off, the UCI and Peter Sagan's team, Bora, have decided to end the case regarding Sagan's DQ from this year's tour. Remember, Sagan was booted for irregular sprinting after Mark Cavendish crashed during his sprint into Vettel. Oh, you mean and, when uh, Cavendish rammed into him because <laughs> he rode through a grate that he shouldn't have been in? Okay, I can go with that one. Yeah, sure. Uh, well, hours before the case was supposed to be heard by the Court of Arbitration Sport, the UCI and Bora settled and released a joint statement calling the crash 
an unintentional race incident. Uh, I think something's missing here. I mean, even their joint statement says the jury that DQ'd Sagan got it wrong, but now Sagan is saying, ah, the past is already forgotten. It's all about improving our sport in the future. This is not what we want, is it, Patrick? I want, come on, let's battle this thing out. Let's settle this thing. Oh, you know, uh, let me say that I am completely upset with ASO and the UCI over this, that Sagan should be such a gentleman and say, oh, I'm I'm already on to other things. I, I'm, you know, this is the past. I'm not going to dwell on it. I'm moving forward. He is absolutely to be commended for that. I, I, I love that dude. You know, it's, uh, you know, he's, he's had his moments of, of, shall we say, you know, not the best behavior in the whole world, but he's matured into a pretty incredible individual. And I really celebrate him for that. But the UCI and ASO, um, they got this as wrong as wrong can be. And, you know, a, a six-month-late apology, uh, okay, five months. Mm-hmm. No, no, that is unacceptable. They threw him out for the whole race. I mean, think about it. Those were UCI points at stake. He doesn't have the ranking in the UCI standings that he would. This is going to hurt his earning, you know? Yeah. I mean, th- for them to make such a, uh, an impactful decision without having bothered to gather Anything approaching all the facts, I don't want to say unforgivable, but it was really irresponsible on their part. And their sudden mea culpa of, oh, sorry, we got it wrong. That's just not flipping good enough. And even Bora, I think Bora could have chased this thing a little stronger, too, and kept after it because they lose, too. I mean, the marketing dollars lost because Sagan was not in the tour for its three-week cycle. He would, You know he'd have been there. He'd have been oh, putting that he, jersey he on would have TV. won other stages for sure. And He's they, Peter freaking Sagan. Yeah, that's gone. That's yeah. gone. So, okay. Ah, 46-year-old David Rebellin has signed another pro contract. He will ride next year for the Natura Forever Sovac team. That's a continental team out of Algeria. Rebellin has five classic wins and one doping ban to his name. Quote, one of the dreams of our manager, Jeffrey Koop, came true this morning, read a team statement. <clears throat> David Rebellin will be an important part of our team, both in terms of his sporting qualities and in terms of the experience he can bring to our young riders. This year, Rebellin actually won a stage race in Indonesia and won a stage of the Tour of Iran. Man, 46 years old, Patrick, there's hope for us. No, (laughs) there might be hope for you. There's not hope for me. No. (laughs) Come on now. You know what's funny is if Rebian actually were to become an amateur again and race in one of our road races, we'd have to race against him. He'd be in the 45-plus category. We'd be racing against this guy. Yeah. Do you think a a 50-year-old could actually race a UCI race, be competitive on the UCI level? I mean, if we were talking about, you know, our former teammate and the designer of the uh, cyclocross homage T-shirt uh, that we're about to print uh, with RKP, uh, Greg G. Money Libert, I that dude Mike could finish a UCI race or two. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a couple of guys out there who 
probably have the wherewithal and and I'm willing to say also I believe are clean um yeah. you know aren't on the anti-aging regimen <laughs> but by and large it's just a it's a colossally surreal thought you know and I mean there's something who knows maybe maybe Rebian is the sort of guy who really is a great mentor to other riders I've not seen anything in terms of quotes or other interviews or profiles that have ever led me to think that he's um, a great leader of riders. Mm -hmm. And so I have some doubts about this. But if he were truly a great mentor to riders, then dynamite. Keep him in the peloton. Let him Mm -hmm. teach the younger riders. Terrific. But, you know, the fact is uh, he was known to be a a pretty in-it-for-himself performer. Uh, a lot of his wins were freelanced. You know, he didn't have a team uh, working around him. And a lot of the young pros don't really want to hear it from the old farts. So I don't know how useful he is. Right. And I think the only thing holding back a 50-year-old being uh, racing in the world tour level is desire. Because usually by the time you're Rebbe Yeen's age, you're friggin' worn out with his stuff. I mean, look at Philip Guyman. He just went, that's enough, man. And he's, you know, <laughs> and he's not even climbing with, yeah, he could be climbing with the stars right now, but he's, I mean, that is just it. It is such a taxing sport that by the time you reach your forties, you are done. Okay. One of the race moments of 2016 is still a bit of a mystery to the writer who went through it. Tom Dumoulin was forced to the side of the road during the stage 16 of the Giro. He had just come off the Stelvio. He pulled his giant over to the side of the road, dropped his shorts, and while wearing the pink jersey, fertilized the plants. He got back on and amazingly lost just two minutes and days later celebrated a Grand Tour win. But what caused Dumoulin's nasty stomach problem is still a mystery. Dumoulin says he recently spent two days in the hospital trying to figure this thing out. He says the same thing happened to him during the tour in 2016, but he still has no clue why. Now, there's some speculation... It's diet, maybe too many gels at altitude. The Jiro winner says he's following a specific food plan right now in hopes of nailing this thing down. But, man, uh, Patrick, do you have an iron gut or do you have a Tommy tummy, Tommy Dumoulin? <laughs> I don't have a Tommy tummy. Um, what I can say, though, is the longer the day, the more sensitive my entire gastric system gets. So... If I'm 10 hours into, you know, a 130-mile ride, something like that, uh, like the last time that you and I and, and some buddies of ours did the Ride of the Immortals, mm-hmm. um, I my, yeah, you combine length and altitude and my stomach starts to get fussy. There are certain foods that uh, aren't terribly appealing to me. But by and large, I just kind of roll. Uh, mm-hmm. I went through one short period of like two months probably 10, no, more, 14 years ago, uh, where every ride ended with a rushed trip to the bathroom. I, oh. Like two months, it went on and on and on. I thought, I might not be riding. Uh, I might not be able to race anymore if this is the scene. And then it passed. Just one day it stopped happening. Hmm. little acclimation maybe in the end. Uh, me, I, I can pretty much eat anything. I know it's, I could probably eat bacon, fat, grease. I could eat a burger. I have eaten hamburgers in the middle of a ride and been fine. A middle of a hundred mile mountain bike ride. Two Big Macs went down 
So I guess I'm lucky in that sense. I don't have Tommy's problem. Uh, we wish him luck. He's a good writer. He's an excellent writer despite this issue. And if he gets it figured out, hell, there'll be more Grand Tour wins for Tom Dumoulin. Okay. Yeah. That's going to wrap up the first half of the show. Coming up, we have a great interview with a frame builder. Uh, good guy. Uh, I was glad to catch up with him up in Santa Barbara. We'll do our Paceline picks as well. Coming up next on the Paceline. I needed to uh, to take a, a dump. And, uh, yeah, I could not hold it anymore. It was after the first time Stelvio. I started to feel it in a downhill. And uh, yeah, I just had to stop. Uh, it was not possible to continue anymore. Chances are, if you're listening to this, you're a cyclist. And because you're a cyclist, you can save up to 25.5% on your life insurance by purchasing it through Health IQ. In addition to all the usual information you give for insurance, such as age, gender, height, weight, and nicotine use, the amount of riding you do each week is considered, and you can take quizzes that may reduce your payments further. It turns out that knowing what it takes to be fit has its own value. Health IQ knows that people who ride have an 18% lower risk of heart disease, a 28% lower risk of overall mortality, and a 45% lower risk of cancer. So drop by healthiq.com forward slash paceline podcast to get your free no obligation quote. The Pace Line, the podcast on two wheels. Michael Hutton, Patrick Brady here. Fatty is uh, not with us for show 93, but uh, we're going to find him. We'll get him back here somehow. He can't escape us forever. Uh, frame builders. Patrick, you and I love to geek out on this stuff. Uh, I'm a bit, I'm a little newer to this custom build scene. You have obviously been into it for a very long time. Um, but finding a frame builder, I'm in SoCal, folks. Finding a frame builder in Southern California is not real easy. Uh, Northern California, other parts of the country, yeah, you've got the, you've got Oregon, for instance. There's plenty of frame builders to pick from if you'd like to stay local. Patrick, if you wanted a custom-built steel frame and you wanted to support a SoCal builder, what are the choices? Well, my my go-to choice that I had truly hoped I would make a purchase from someday was Brian Bayless down in San Diego. I've wanted a Bayless for uh, 20-ish years. And uh, unfortunately, uh, what, we're coming up on, I think, two years ago. Brian died, unfortunately. So he's not a choice. Um, You know, there are some other interesting builders in the San Diego area. To my knowledge, there's nobody working professionally, you know, on a full-time basis in the greater LA basin. Uh, that's even if you include Riverside and San Berdu. And so, you know, at that point, you know, your, your options mean traveling North to the central coast. And if I wanted to work with somebody that, you know, I could go see and he'd do a fitting on me, I'd go see Aaron Stinner up in Santa Barbara. Well, that's what I did. I didn't go for a fitting, but I went up to meet Aaron Stinner 
Um, he is Central Coast by nature, but it, the drive to the Stinner Workshop is about two hours from here. He's in uh, Goleta, technically, which is near the University of California, Santa Barbara campus. He has five models, Patrick, in his lineup. A road, a road disc, a road gravel, a monster cross, and a hardtail. I recently spent a month on his road gravel machine, the Refugio, and it's been reviewed. It's up on RKP right now, in fact. Yeah. So check out that review. We also spoke with Aaron for the pace line, and here's that conversation. Right, we're here at Stinner Frameworks in Santa Barbara, uh, actually in the warehouse of Stinner Frameworks. That's why we have a bit of an echo. This is, <laughs> if you ever thought the bike business was uh, glorious, you ought to just come to a, a builder's shop sometime. <laughs> it's just a warehouse, folks, with a lot of machines. Look, if you're into tools, you'll love the place. There's a punch clock on the wall here. There's a keg on the floor. There's trucks driving by outside. We're close to an airport. That's what you get when you get into the bike business on the level that Aaron Stinner has. We're going to get into Aaron's story real quick. Um, as we record this, folks, um, something very bad is happening in Santa Rosa. Our, our guest here knows about Santa Rosa, and he's going to tell us about that in a second. Fires are burning up there, and a lot of us are thinking about Santa Rosa right now. But I want to turn to, to Aaron Stinner, who's our guest this week. Aaron, you're, you're from Santa Rosa originally. Tell us about, first of all, your beginnings in, in Santa Rosa and how you ended up in Santa Barbara. Sure. Yeah. So I, I've grown up all over the state of California. Um, I've been known to be from Santa Rosa mostly cause that's where I got my start riding. Um, so my family lived in Bennett Valley, uh, and we were very close to Annadale state park. So that's where I really started riding, um, mountain bikes when I was, you know, 12, 13 years old. And so, yeah, as you guys know, there's a fire going on up there and, you know, hoping to trying to stay in touch with as many friends and, and family members as we can, but hopefully everything works out for them up there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, Aaron's been, in fact, hosting people down here who have had to escape the fire. So he's been pulling double duty this week as a frame builder and uh, somebody who's trying to, you know, be like a lot of people these days and to help people in trouble, which so hats off to you, Aaron, for Thanks. trying to juggle both. Um, eventually you end up in Santa Barbara. How did that yeah. happen? So my family moved here in um my sophomore year of high school um reloc my mom got remarried and uh we moved down here and uh my stepdad uh is a photographer here in town so it's a if you've ever been to santa barbara it's a great place to be a photographer he shoots architectural photography um and he's actually the one who got me into into riding was my stepfather um and he comes from a road riding background he's from colorado um when I was, when he met me, I was doing a lot of mountain biking and he was like, try this road biking thing out. And when you're 13 years old, the idea of putting on some Lycra and going to ride around is not the coolest thing you could do. Um, but I tried it nonetheless and I got the bug and I started racing. So when I lived in Santa Rosa, I started riding with a junior program up there called team Swift, um, which has grown back then. It was like a core group of like five of us um and then when i moved down here i raced on a a local program called echelon and they had a junior system um and i worked with my co- our coach was rory o'reilly and he kind of guided us for those those last three years as juniors when i when i raced down here now you're a gaucho and for the folks who don't know what a gaucho is that means you went to the university of california at santa barbara and you graduated in 
biopsychology. Yep. Uh, please explain what it. Uh, so biopsych was a fairly new major at UCSB then. I, I went in poli sci, uh, not really knowing what I was going to do in college. I actually got accepted really late to UCSB. So originally my plan was to race my bike and go to city college. Um, and then I got, I was at nationals racing and I had gotten an email like four weeks before school was supposed to start that I got late acceptance to UCSB. And I only applied really to UCSB. The goal was if I had moved a lot as a kid. So I was like, I kind of want to stay. I liked, I was settled. I'd been here for three years. I was like, I want to stay in Santa Barbara. Um, so I, got in last minute and kind of had to pick a major and figure out what I was going to do with like with my life in college, uh, in quotations. Um, so I, 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 I picked poli sci and I changed my sophomore year to biopsych as I was doing still racing a lot. Yeah. And biopsych was really the major that was more specific to sports medicine. Okay. So it allowed me to, if I was going to go on to grad school and do athlete training and coaching and all these other things that I kind of thought I was going to do at that point in time, um, that was the major to do. So I did biopsych with an emphasis on like sports med, like more sports medicine and kinesiology and those kind of things. So it's a weird, it's a weird title, but um, yeah. yeah. So even weirder, how does a biopsych major end up? in the bike business? <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, that's another good question. So the idea was uh, that I was gonna go to grad school and I was gonna pursue more of a sports medicine background, working with athletes. Um, I was an athlete, so that's kind of where my drive was at that point in time. Graduated in 2008, which was probably the worst time to graduate and try to go get a job anywhere, um, which was an interesting time. I was working part-time at a bike shop that I grew up working in throughout high school and college. Uh, I had an opportunity to start managing the shop. So I took that on, um, stayed here in Santa Barbara, was managing the shop for a year or so, and kind of took what I had been learning in college, which was the sports medicine background, and I applied it to doing and building a fit program at the shop I was at. So managing the shop, building out a fit program for that shop, and started bringing in a lot of, the goal was to bring in more, a lot more recreational cyclists into the shop and get them to be, you know, fit them and get them to be more comfortable. We started bringing in athletes because I had a background working with athletes. Um, so we got a few national team members. We had a few other people that we got to work with um, through this program. So I was doing a lot of fitting. Um, as that fitting progressed and I got to work with more and more athletes, I was work, I also have a track background as well. So track cycling background. Um, was working with a few track cycling athletes and we were really trying to like dial in a lot of geometry things that we were dealing with, with track stuff. And, and this is much more velodrome specific than it is like fixed gear street riding. I mean, this is, this is track specific. Um, and so I was getting really into the idea of like, yeah, if we change these things, we can get athletes into different positions, more aerodynamic, more of this, that, and the other. And just to like learn more. And I, I, and in the meantime, I mean, I was very open about it, but I was like pursuing trying to get a job with any brand that would pick me up to, to work more on the fitting side of things. So I was talking to specialized, I was talking to track, I was talking to as many people as I could. And the goal was to kind of leverage my sports medicine background, work with athletes, but then work for a brand um, that was gonna allow me to kind of like implement these ideas and thoughts that I had. So I went to UBI to learn frame building. Um, mostly so I could just get more background 
on like design and how to how I would design it, how would I approach it, how would I make this bike uh, if I were to make it for an athlete? It, are the ideas that are in my mind even sound ideas? Um, so I went there and I did that and I came back with the knowledge, the basic knowledge of how to assemble a bike. Um, and I mean, I had a lot of knowledge on how things are designed, but I didn't necessarily understand the joining principles. So I came back, knew how to build, build a frame and, and word kind of got out that I knew how to do it. I built a few track bikes for myself to try on the track and then, um, built a few for a few other friends that were, we were testing some things out, different wheel sizes, different things, this, that, and the other, um, people found out that I knew how to build bikes and it, and it kind of got out that I could, that I could build them a bicycle. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and then, and then it kind of, then it kind of snowballed into something where it's like, okay, well, if I'm going to do this for a customer, like for somebody I don't know, um, I need to go through the process of getting the insurance and making sure I'm covered and finding a space where I can do this somewhat efficiently. So I'm not banging my head against the wall every time I need to build bike. Um, and it, it just kind of grew from there. So there was never an intention to be a frame builder. It just kind of happened that I became a frame builder. So um, yeah, before you know it, you got strangers asking you for frame. What's harder to build for us? Uh, is it harder to build a frame for somebody you know or somebody you don't know? That's a good question. Um, I'd say it's easier to build it for somebody that I know um, just because I... I usually have a deeper knowledge of the type of riding yeah. so I can really pinpoint them. Um, you know, to be honest at the, at the get go, it wasn't really that hard for me to figure out like what bike a customer needed. I mean, I had such a deep knowledge from either racing my bike and, or being in the bike industry, like working in a shop that it was like, you already had the, I, you know, this is how you get somebody on a bike. This is how you figure out what bike they need to be on. You just talking to the customer, they walk in through the door and you're like, you know, you're in a bike shop and you have all these things on the wall and you got to help them kind of figure out what they need. Um, so that aspect of it was pretty natural for me. Um, and then I got to apply a lot of the things that I had learned either in college or, you know, as I was learning, um, the fabrication process, I was able to apply a lot of that to be able to develop a product that somebody wanted. So and then in addition to uh, working with athletes and getting to know them and friends asking you to, to build frames, yep. The bike industry itself, the bike shop that you're working for, also gave you a little push onto this side of things. You were, there was some frustration there with how that business model worked. Yeah, so, I mean, I've being in the bike shop and being young and then also implementing a fit program and going through all these things, you start to notice the nuances of how the industry is built um, and that it is, I mean, it's an industry we're all here to make money. Right. But at the end of the day, there's some people's way of going about and how they make money is you, you see how that trickles into the design process and how they're building bikes and why they're building bikes a certain way and how they're able to get more and more of that stuff out there. And as I was managing the shop that I was at, not only did it, was I experiencing these frustrations of like, why are they making this? Or like, why is this happening? But then I was also on the financial side of things, you know, like having to figure out, uh, early season stuff. So like, you know, in the fall of, you know, you're doing all this preseason having to predict all this stuff that you're going to sell for the prior year. And like, you're buying into all this inventory and massive lines of credits are opening. And like all of these things are happening where you're just like, this seems so backwards. Like, why are we doing this? Like why in the world 
first of all, I mean, I was very new to it, but I was like, why in the world would anybody commit to something like this? This is, this is a big bet, you know, like as somebody, I mean, I, I take risks opening a business and opening a company, but like taking those big bets, I mean, it's crazy. Um, and sure, you know, we'd work through inventory, but at the end of every year, you blowing stuff out and you're selling things and you're, it's, things are going for cheap and you're actually diluting you're diluting yourself and you're diluting the brand that's actually making those bikes at the same time. So in my mind, I was like, this is insane. Like why, why anybody, why this made sense to anybody is beyond me. But really, I mean, the big brands are trying to move units, get it as you build. And as you scale, you got to support your employees. You got to do all these things. And in order to do cooler and cooler projects and make cooler, cooler product, but you start constraining yourself because now you have, you got to feed the beast, right? That's where the term comes from. So, um, I was frustrated, yeah. To say the least, I was I was pretty frustrated with the whole model. I don't know, actually, turn the frustration into Stinner Frameworks, uh, the frustration and your experiences into Stinner Frameworks, and by 2010, you're off and running. And then 2012, you win Rookie of the Year at NABS, and our buddy Patrick Brady is yeah. there to give you the award. But by 2014, you were already like, whoa, right? I'm in a bit of a spot of bother here. Uh, were you being overwhelmed by the business, by the number of orders? What was happening in the 2014 time that made you kind of hit the reset button? So 2012 was great. I mean, it was a huge deal for us. NABS is an amazing program. Um, they've, they've been instrumental in, in, in getting me exposure to be able to be where we're at today. Um, the model that we were built, the bike business frame building model is great. I really like the idea of building to order, right? You're building to order. You're never having to carry inventory. I mean, it's all the things that I was trying to get rid of that were haunting from when I was at the bike shop and it's direct to consumer. So you're cutting out, cutting out a, a middleman essentially. Um, but I, you need to develop a back order, a backlit, you know, a work, uh, sorry, not backlist, but a, a backlog, um, of clients. And so I had about, about a year's worth of backlog and that can be extremely frustrating if you're a single builder um and i've talked to a lot of other builders that have experienced burnout from having a backlog that's like that and i was at a crossroads of really like do i keep going you know I, i enjoyed having i was busy i was able to make money but you become a kind of a slave to your backlog and you become a bit of a slave to um yeah your backlog and 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 working and you don't have any help and you're kind of struggling along and then that's when the business side of it i'm kind of started to kind of like a lot of things kind of started coming to a head for me so it was like do i keep going and doing this I, i really love the frame building but i'm getting pretty exhausted um or do I figure out how to scale, within quotes, um, scale the business? Mm-hmm. And you decided to scale and yeah. came up with this kind of this lean and mean idea with the help of another. Uh, yeah, guy. so decided to scale. Um, and I mean, I use the term scale loosely. Like we will never, the goal for us is never to be, uh, you know, hundred of million dollar company. The idea is to, to build within our means and to stay, uh, to stay hand, stay handmade, stay made in the U S all of those things. And probably, you know, we'll probably have a certain ceiling that will hit, um, at a certain point, but yeah, the idea was to get some employees to help me get through my backlog. Um, and I had to really come up with, if I was going to do it, um, and to cut the risk out for myself, I was going to have to come up with a pretty solid plan that I could, 
that I could follow through on. And so, uh, at that point in time, I had a good customer of mine that I was still doing some wrenching work for and a bike racing friend. And he, he comes from a, a, you know, Toyota production system or a lean background. Um, and everything that I had been doing to that point in time, I was leveraging lean at the same time. So I was learning about lean and doing all these things. And he and I got in a room together and kind of were like, this is how you, if you're going to scale, this is kind of how you would do it with lean principles. And it made, you know, I, here, I was like, here's my laundry list of what I don't want to get into, which is like, don't want to, if we get into bike shops, I don't want to have them to have to carry inventory. Like I want to make to order. Like I don't want this, you know, all these things. And he's like, well, this is, this is the reason this program exists. This, and he does it for a living. So he in, puts these programs in places in, in big, big companies. So for him to help us was great because he had all the tools already to help us do it. So, um, that's, was our introduction into lean and into the Toyota production system. And so we've built it, you know, from our first, our first employee that we hired and, uh, you know, we've refined the process and really dialed it in, but it's, it's a made to order, um, no inventory lean, lean operation that we run here. So as opposed to you trying to do everything you brought in a couple of people and then implemented a, a something that was a little more systematic that helped uh, push push the bikes along a little a little faster than they were getting out of here before so you could keep up with the orders yeah exactly yeah so the idea was you know you kind of look at what you have coming inbound and then you try to match that outbound right so it's a first in first out approach and then also a somewhat of a not an, it's not an assembly line, but more of a production line and how you can, the custom business is hard in general, any kind of custom product is hard. And so there's a lot of things that we had to implement in order to like keep with our, our business model and also just allow bikes to kind of keep moving. So we, we started by hiring on a fabricator that helped me fabricate or helped me fabricate while I was doing the welding. And then beginning of 2015, we brought paint in house because paint was a big pain point for us and able to remain lean and to be able to make build to order and stick to our due dates and do all these things that for us were business 101 and that we needed to make sure we did. Uh, we brought paint in house. So we had that flexibility and the ability to get product out faster and better and in, in, in condition promise kind of, kind of thing. So we kind of kept bolting things on as, as the needs and the demand of the business provided. So you get, you know, one order a week. Well, you only need to produce a system that can put out one order a week. Um, you get two orders in a week, you produce a system that puts in two orders out a week. So there's no reason to go. And for us, we don't need to figure out how to build a thousand bikes today because we don't have a thousand orders coming in a year. So it's like, for us, we do about a bike a day and that's our system is built perfectly to be able to put out a bike a week, a bike a day. So, um, you have, uh, the Gibraltar Refugio Romero tunnel. I think Gibraltar comes in either rim brake or disc. So you work in steel and titanium. Yep. Um, but is there a common theme or thread that runs through all of those bikes, whether it be the mountain bike, the monster cross or the road bike? Is there, is there an, an Aaron Stinner stamp or on, on each one of those bikes that a customer could distinctly notice? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I come from a very simplistic design value. Um, so everything that I always do is, um, it, it comes from a very simple approach. So, 
you know, omit the things that don't need to be there and keep the things, you know, keep the things that need to be there. Um, let those remain. So I always, from a design principle, start there is how can I make this as simply as possible? And for a lot of people, when I say that word simple, they seem it like it's really basic. Simple and basic are two very different things. It's actually really hard to design something that's very simple. Um, so, and if people are familiar with like Dieter Rams, that's like a very uh, philosophical, he's a designer, but those philosophies that he's instilled are things that I leverage a lot for product design and for how we develop our product. Um, he must be German. <laughs> he is I German. think the Germans are very much into that. In fact, they're very much, if you cannot prove that there is a performance difference for a design, don't do it. Yep. Just stick with what you've got. Keep it simple and stick with you. Stick with only make changes when there is a distinct and measurable performance difference. Yep, exactly. And that's what you believe in. Yep, absolutely, a hundred percent. And so that's 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 my philosophy on it. Um, and so all of our bikes kind of follow that philosophy, um, even all the way down to our paint schemes. Um, for the most part, we do get a little ornate. That's like where we get to kind of really flex our creative muscle a little bit more is in paint, but from a, yeah, fabricating, machining, designing, making, it comes from, from those, from those principles. Um, so yeah, that's kind of the common thread throughout, throughout all the bikes. And then kind of, you know, each of them fulfill their, specific duties in each each one so from the customer interface standpoint and i don't know if this is a slight on how it's set up i i lay i described it as cafeteria style sure. so when i order a, a bike from stinner i get to pick uh it's just a leaf blower it's okay. all, right. all right we don't mind again we're in an industrial, <laughs> industrial area folks area. anything can happen yeah we could get a plane oprah could land at any time now yeah so anything can happen here if some yeah. welding equipment fires up it's cool we're just yeah. building frames here for the customer interface, I mean, again, I described it as cafeteria style and that you choose the bike model you want and then there's all these other options to pick from, right? And those can happen um, for the customer and you can still meet your turnaround time. Yeah, yeah, so we have, uh, I mean, our standard average throughout the year is about an eight week turnaround time. Um, our design process is uh, very systematic. So we have it laid out nice and easy to kind of move the customer along as we need to, in order to hit those deadlines. Um, but yeah, I guess a cafeteria style, or we like to use like kind of a menu style of like options, uh, you know, cafeteria, but yeah, so it's, a, it's like a menu style of ordering or what we've, we actually think it's more semi custom, but although to the outside world, it's still very open. Like we have, we offer the, thousands of different options to choose from. So yeah, I mean, we, it's walking the customer through the steps so they don't miss anything. So it's, you know, picking your drivetrain, picking your wheel set, picking your cockpit, picking your bearings. And it just walks you down the list of like where you need to make decisions if you're going to buy a complete bike. And yeah, it seems very kind of like menu-y or, or like kind of like, you know, like going to Chipotle and making your own burrito. Um, it's very that style, but at the same time, those, those systems work. And again, it's a kind of a, a manufacturing like Toyota production system thing that we're leveraging in order to make sure that we don't miss anything. Because one thing that is, if you're in this business and you're building different, you're, we're, we build different bikes every single day. We could be working on a, you know, tie monster cross. And then the next day we're doing a road bike. And the day after that we're doing a refugio and the day after that we're doing something else. And so these things 
because those things are constantly changing, you need to make the system as simple as possible so that you can ensure that you don't miss anything. Um, and if anybody's gotten a custom bike before or heard stories of people getting custom bikes, sometimes there's, 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 uh, some horror stories out there about people, you know, experiencing things where they've, you know, missed this, that, or the other because of it's very difficult to build everything from the ground up. Um, there's a reason why stock bikes exist because it gets rid of a lot of the problems, but we've leveraging lean and leveraging our style of production. We've been able to still offer a very custom product, very custom product, um, without, without kind of compromising the product at the same time. Now, when folks go to your website too, they'll see a lot of set frame sizes uh, and a number of size runs yep. on your website, but they are free to order custom as well. There's an upcharge, but you can order custom. Um, strike the balance here for us. Are we getting anything more? Is it? Do you see it as a builder worth the price of admission to go custom, there's certainly a lot of guys out there with a torch in their hand going, you gotta get custom, it's the only way to go. I get the feeling you're saying, you could really go either way. Yeah, I think, I think there's a customer for both. Um, I think a majority of our customers have fallen into the, uh, you know, fall on our geometry table. So if you go to our geometry table online, a majority of our customers can get any of those bikes and the bike will work for them. You know, we may have to put a spacer underneath the stem or we may have to do a few things from a fit perspective in order to get it to fit them perfectly. But you're going to have to do that kind of regardless of whether or not you get a custom bike or not. I'm, I'm almost six foot five. I have a 38, 39 inch inseam. Um, my torso is extremely short. I run like a 57.5 or a 58 kind of effective top tube for how tall I am. So I fall in the category of kind of necessary for custom. Um, and if we got somebody like myself that walked in off the street, we would push them to custom. You're going to get a better product. You're going to get a better experience. Everything is going to be better for going that way. And inversely, normally people that fall on the, um, on the shorter end of the spectrum, those outliers are usually the ones that kind of fall into our custom program naturally. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, you know, every, not to say that everybody in between doesn't, there aren't little things that you can tweak, but it may not be that important for that customer. So we wanted to make it again, the idea is to make the process as simple, um, as possible so that it's a little bit more approachable for them. So the idea of like, it's always custom for a customer for at least for our customer was a little off putting because it, you start to like, well, what, what are you building? What are you designing? Why are you do, like, there's a lot of unknowns and then a lot of questions. And then usually that will just, the customer won't, won't end up buying from us or they won't even end up starting to ask those questions. Mm -hmm. uh, there's no doubt that when it comes to frames, carbon is king right now. It kind of rules the world. Um, but my brief meeting with you here and reading your website and reading articles on you, I, I don't get the feeling you're one of these guys, one of these bearded guys with a torch in your hand going, steel is real, we're the only real product out there. You don't seem to take that approach. Yes, you favor steel. You have titanium again. You favor steel. So put steel into, into perspective as you see it right now as it relates to carbon and the whole world we're operating in right now. 
Yeah, I mean, I think from a, for me personally, from a characteristic standpoint, I love the ride of a steel bike. And I don't think you can really beat it with carbon and you can't really beat it with titanium. You can't beat it with, and for me personally. So if I'm going to design bikes, I'm going to design something that I am very passionate about. Um, there's not to say that any of those materials or materials in general, the, even stuff that we're not using in the bike industry, they all have their purposes, right? They all have their their reasons for being out there. Yeah, you, you use carbon forks. We use carbon bikes. forks and we carbon handlebars. We carbon rims. Like there's plenty of carbon stuff that we use and, and steel would not really be applicable in those areas. But I believe we can build a steel bicycle that is extremely competitive and when I say competitive, I mean in all the categories that make a bicycle competitive with a carbon bicycle. So just because just because carbon's popular doesn't mean that that's the only material that you should be riding. And I think I think people are coming around to that idea. And I think, you know, anybody who's in the bike industry knows that these other materials have been around for a long time. Um, I just happen to really love the steel stuff. And my, I think I'll always have a passion for it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think it's just a, it's a preference thing. Yeah. Um, I'm going to get back to the Santa Barbara thing real quick here. Let's see. We have the Gibraltar, the Refugio, a Refugio, mm-hmm. a Refugio, depending on where you're from, the Romero, and the Tunnel. Those are all names of climbs or places here in Santa Barbara. Is there anything else about these bikes that say Santa Barbara? Has Santa Barbara had that profound of an influence on, on the frames that are coming out of this place? We've picked, I mean, the, the, the names of the bikes have, I mean, really been picked to be an organic process just because we were actually, we're testing these bikes on those roads. Um, now it's not the only, like the only place we test them, but you know, if when the road bike that I, I mean, I've climbed Gibraltar probably thousands of times, um, and you know, I've ridden my bikes. So there's a lot of influence in our product that has come from that climb. Yeah, I mean, by the way, folks, Gibraltar Road is a beyond category climb, and yeah. to get up that climb, you better have the machine that can do it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a it's a it's world famous. It's it's a it's a difficult climb, um, and it's be being an athlete here in Santa Barbara, you're training on that stuff all the time. So it's hard to say that I don't. I, you know, it's hard to say like, well, yeah, I don't take any influence from that. Like that climb has no influence in the product that we build. it does. I mean, if that's what you're used to riding on all the time, it's going to have flavors and characteristics of that climb in the product. Um, and it's the same with our Refugio. I mean, tested the Refugio on Refugio a lot and I've ridden that climb in the backside of it a lot. Mm -hmm. And so to say that there's a lot of that road that is in that bike. Um, so to really experience, you know, as we talk about the different characteristics of the different bikes, I mean, it's almost like you got to take the bike and go ride the road to really get the, like the deep dive on why, why it works or why I assume it works. Yeah, or at least study the road and have an, have an idea about it. And then you kind of know what the bike's about. And when you take it on your local roads, boom, you've boom. got it. Yep. Uh, I'll wrap up this way. And this is, uh, you know, an easy one, I think, or maybe not. Um, uh, give us your thoughts on, you know, what's happening in, down the road in the near future with the bike industry and, and for Stinner Frameworks. Yeah. I mean, I think, so it's interesting times, um, for the bike industry in general, I think we are so big, big change for us. We were direct to consumer for a really long time. The last year we've been adding on a lot of, we've been adding on dealers. So we have, and we found that, um, 
adding specific quality dealers on that they actually add a lot to our program um, and they add a lot to our customer experience. And so we've learned a lot. I mean, I come from the bike, I come from, you know, a local bike shop. So I understand how they work and it was allowing me to apply the principles that we talked about earlier to the way we were going to sell bikes to our dealers. Um, and I mean, it's a hotly, it's hotly top talked about right now, which is the, you know, omni-channel approach. So how do we do both direct and how do we also work with our dealers and also make sure that they're getting you know, what they need to do and what they need to survive. So it's, it's, it's ever changing. I'm having a lot of fun with what we do because our program is a build to order model. And I think the program that we're offering to our dealers is is really effective for them because they don't have to carry inventory. If they have a, you know, obviously a shop needs to kind of have like a custom fit program for it to kind of work with what we do or have a setup to be able to sell a custom bike. But it's a different, it's a slightly different model than, you know, the big brands are working on. And so we're able to work with them. And we also able to bring in a lot of like the custom design stuff that we do into their shop and, and expose different ways of selling bikes than maybe what they're used to. So that's really exciting for us. Uh, our product line is continuing to, to grow. Um, and we're working on new, new products here and there. And, uh, I mean, we're, we're excited. I mean, we're, we're growing. So, I mean, I guess there's really, it's hard to, while everybody else has been kind of hurting over the last couple of years, um, we've kind of been on the other end of things. So I like to think we're doing something right if that's the way it's going. So, um, I, I'm optimistic. I love the, I love the industry. So I'm optimistic about it. Yeah. I guess I failed to mention folks is I've been riding the refugio for the last three or four weeks and had a great time on it. So I want to thank Stinner Frameworks for loaning me a bicycle, and we're going to have a review on that coming up. Aaron, I want to thank you for joining us on the Pace Line. Good luck in the future. Thanks. Appreciate it. Again, that was Aaron Stinner of Stinner Frameworks out of Santa Barbara slash Goleta. Patrick, you have a connection with Aaron through the North American Handmade Bicycle Show. Yeah. No, back in 2012, my first year of judging the awards or being one of the judges, I, I wouldn't want to give anyone the impression that I was the sole judge. But my first uh, year of being on the panel of judges in 2012 up in Sacramento, uh, Aaron was one of the new builders. He had a single frame at one of the new builder tables. And I remember that that was a year where there was an awful lot of good work. And we had a lot of conversations about just who to give it to. But uh, he had a, a really nice frame, super clean work. And... Uh, you know, it's been one of those things that uh, that helped propel orders for him and helped take, you know, what was a, um, a fledgling enterprise and turn it into a, a real business. And this year, he uh, one of his bikes for sure was a finalist for the best gravel category, his monster cross bike that had a dropper post operated by an STI lever and just a really cool color scheme clearance for ginormous tires it's funny how often i run across gravel bikes that won't take anything larger than about a 32 or 33 millimeter tire uh in the gravel category aaron gets it he really does and so you know it's one of those things that because he's such an active rider you know does events and whatnot he uh he's a great example of somebody who really gets it 
Yeah, that was probably the Romero you folks judged there. Um, I rode the Refugio. Again, that review is up at RKP. The Refugio will clear 40s, and and I know that Romero will do probably 50s or close to 50s, if not 50s. So, yeah, he does get it, and he's a class guy, and I really enjoyed uh, hanging out with him up at his shop uh, in Goleta. All right, speaking of Red Kite Prayer, Patrick, what is new on the site? Well, since it's Christmas time, you know, we're getting into uh... – you know, gift giving and people needing to buy gifts for other people and people thinking about the things they want people to give them. And so we're hitting with a whole bunch of product review right now. Uh, just today, uh, so, well, I guess I should say yesterday uh, for when people hear this, um, I, I posted my review of the Bell Stratus helmet. We've just done some time attack pedals. Uh, some clothing from uh, uh, from Jordana for cool and wet weather, and uh, certainly more is on the way. I've got a lot of apparel to get through. So for anybody looking for stuff to help carry them through these uh, colder, damper months, uh, stay tuned. There's a lot of good stuff. Good, yeah. F- buying um, buying bicycle products. For a cyclist, I, I can't imagine. I mean, we're cyclists, so we get it. If I had to buy Patrick something, I, I think I could figure it out. But for the non-cyclist trying to buy for a cyclist, that's a tough call. So go to RKP and check it out. You might get at least get an idea of some of the better products that are that are out there, and then maybe you can make a choice. Or if not, just get the gift card. That always works too. All right, <laughs> let's head off to Paceline Picks. Uh, I'm gonna to lead things off since Fanny's yeah. not here. I, I'm gonna go first this time. Uh, and I'm going to start with a question, Patrick. What is your favorite food on the bike? Oh, wow. Hmm. Golly. Could be a bar. Could be packaged. I don't mind. Um, gel. It's, it's probably some flavor of goo gel, quite oh. honestly. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love the quick energy of gels. And goo does so many really incredible flavors. I love their cola. I love the lemon. The blueberry pomegranate is pretty good. They've got a couple new favorite flavors, uh, the s'mores and the toasted marshmallow. Uh, my buddy Yuri, who works there, calls that one the Stoner's Delight, which is mm-hmm. probably appropriate. <laughs> um, so, yeah, they are, I would say, the, the most creative of the bunch that they got rid of. Uh, there was a, what was it, a caramel apple that they were doing? Um, there was some flavor recently that I just adored they got rid of, but they do have uh, the salted caramel. That's another one that is just just amazing. Love mm. that one. Mm. Well, I mostly like real food, and if I have the time to make something before I ride, I will. Even something simple like a peanut butter and banana sandwich. I'm loving, by the way, the Justin's nut butters, too. I can put those in my pocket or put them on something and eat them. I keep bars around, too, Patrick, for convenience, gels, uh, chews, blocks, what have you. But I'd rather have something home-cooked in the jersey pocket. And this time of year, I go for something truly special. I am a Euromut. Some German, Spanish, English, or Irish. I don't know. But for sure, I have Croatian blood rolling through my veins. Croatia is part of what used to be Yugoslavia. But since the Croats and the Serbs have never gotten along, they junked the idea of trying to live under one government. So I am part Croatian. It comes from my mother's side of the family. My grandmother's maiden name was Cernic. She wasn't born in Croatia. It was Idaho, in fact. But she proudly called herself a Slav, as in Yugoslav. 
She spoke the language, even taught me a few words. Stravo, kakusi, hello, how are you? But the biggest way she reminded us of her roots was through the making and baking of a Croatian bread. It's called povitica. You want to try that one, Patrick? Povitica. Povitica. Pretty good, yeah. Some villages, uh, villages call it potica, but we always said povitica. I'll go over the basics of this bread, how it's made. It's a yeasted dough that is spread out super thin, usually on a floured tablecloth. It's so thin you can almost see through it. Then you make a walnut honey spread and smear it over the dough. The dough is rolled up and then snaked. Grandma would put it in a baking dish and into the oven for about an hour. What do you it mean sounds, by snaked? Like spiraled into the baking yeah, dish? Yeah, like you, so you roll it and then you kind of snake it up. So it's like coiled. Oh, okay. Spiraled yeah. in. Okay, yep. Yeah, and yep. then into the baking dish and then into the oven. It's not easy to make. During an episode of the British Baking Show, contestants were assigned Poviti as a challenge. Four professional bakers struggled to make this magical bread. Their fillings burst through. They had raw centers. Others overbaked and dried out their poor povitica. This is not a pretty-looking bread, no matter the skill of the baker. That left these contestants completely frustrated. But when done right, what comes out of the oven is heaven. Now, Mrs. Hottie and I make povitica every year after Thanksgiving. We crank out about 10 loaves, mail most of them to family, but keep at least one for ourselves. Slices of that delicious, memory-invoking bread will get wrapped and carried to the top of a local climb by me. If I've ridden well, I will reward myself with the ultimate in energy food. One PR equals one slice of povitica. Oh, and I do not share. My grandmother died several years ago after a battle with Alzheimer's. I regret to this day not making a povitica with her. Oh, we know how she made it. I have her handwritten recipe. But I missed an opportunity to learn from the master. I wish I could have that time back. So... My pace on pick is my grandmother and the best food on the bike this side of Croatia, povitica. Mm. Wow. In fact, I got, I got some out on the counter right now. So right after we're done, I'm having a slice. All right, Patrick, pace line, pick. <laughs> well, mine's going to pale in comparison. Uh, you know, with all the cooler weather that we're having, uh, and I, I made a, a run up to Mendocino County recently, and so I've, I've needed stuff that'll you know, keep me warmer in, in colder conditions, you know, when days don't get out of the fifties. And one of the things that I did at Interbike this year was I spent, uh, some solid time over in the booth for seven mesh. I've been aware of these guys, uh, for a little while now, uh, was aware that, you know, their founders came from Arcteryx, which was as rabbit hole and outdoor company as you could find just, stuff of just stupidly superlative quality. And so it was one of those things where, you know, given the reputation of the founders, it was like, well, this could be like kind of the next Asos or Castelli, but their sensibility was a little bit more in line with, you know, other outdoor companies and not as kind of Euro pro oriented. Uh, I'd call them uh, a step closer to Kitspo not quite as casual and off the bike looking as Kitspo. Still super technical materials, super technical cut. They uh, they go to great lengths in terms of making sure that the seams and stitching are perfect, and that you know they've they've really patterned these things so that they move with you instead of across you. 
And so of late, I've been wearing the Callahan, the Callahan jersey from 7Mesh. Um, this is a uh, polyester and merino wool blend in a long sleeve jersey. And uh, I'm in love. <laughs> I, I just, there's no other way to put it. I'm in love. This thing is so fantastic. Uh, it, you know, it fits well. Uh, it looks good. You know, I don't look ridiculous. Um, but, you know, there are some touches to it that show they really have been thinking things through. It's got a reasonably high collar to it so that, you know, if it is a little on the breezy side, you're not getting wind down the collar and into the jersey. Uh, it's full zip so that if you need to ventilate, you can. Uh, it's a reasonably short torso with long sleeves so that the sleeves will really run all the way to your gloves. And then one of my favorite features, it's something that I didn't even notice when I was first looking at the jersey uh, on the Interbike uh, show floor. In back, it's only got two pockets, but they're deep. Uh, they're very deep pockets. They're cut at an angle. And so they have just massive capacity. So if you're pulling off a vest um, or pulling off knee warmers, you've got room to store that stuff and still have room for food and a phone, a credit card. Inside those two big pockets are two smaller sleeves so that, yeah, you can make sure you know where to reach for your phone or you know where to reach for a couple of gels or a bar. And so organization within that is pretty nice. And then I don't know why, you know, so many cycling companies still will, you know, do some sort of uh, silkscreen or other application of their logo onto a jersey or pair of shorts. Uh, they actually embroider their logo into the jersey, and it's just a super classy appearance. So, you know, at $175, that's not cheap. You're probably not going to buy four of those in a single whack, but it's just fantastic quality and i'm stoked because i have several more pieces of theirs to give a try mm. so, you had me at yeah you inch. had me at right you had me at long sleeves that are actually long thank god yeah well oh, you're what 75 percent tree yeah that's right i struggle with that but i love the long sleeve jersey it just finding one that, that gets down to my wrist you know that slave is can be quite difficult. All right, Patrick. Well, thanks for that. We'll look for more great things from Seven Mesh. Interesting sounding company. Cool. Uh, that wraps up show 93 of the Pace Line. Get on over to Red Kite Prayer for more on this episode or any of our 92 others. All editions of this fine podcast can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Music, and of course, RKP. We will get Fatty back into the fold, hopefully for show 94. For Patrick Brady, I am Michael Hutton. Thanks for checking out the Pace Line. Ready? Anyone need to go pee? No. I'm talking to you guys like I do to my dog. Go pee. <laughs> <laughs>